Hello and welcome to Talking Capital. I'm Ian Barnard, CEO of Capital Generation Partners, and I'm here with our Chief Investment Officer, Robert Sears, to answer three questions posed by our clients in recent weeks. For those who don't know us already, CapGen is a private investment office for families with capital. We are go-anywhere investors, so in the course of these episodes, you can expect us to cover any question across any asset class in any region of the world, from bricks and mortar to portfolio derivatives. In summary, this is a podcast where we answer the questions playing on the minds of sophisticated long-term investors. Do subscribe if that sounds up your street and you'll enjoy two episodes a month of Talking Capital. So first of all, welcome back. I hope you had a restful summer. I know that in interesting times like these, many of you don't tune out of market news and uh, work really hard from the beach or the bar, wherever you are, to keep up to date with all the market movements. But for those who did switch off permanently, temporarily, uh, today's episode is to help you hit the ground running and to uh, brief on where we think we are uh, at the start of September. So Robert, if we start off with some foregrounding, I think it's called, as we've been away for a while, let's talk about what happened in August. I guess sitting where, uh, where I sat, it looked like a, a game of two slightly unequal halves where the first half went rather badly uh, and everything looked rather gloomy and, and downy. Uh, and the second half seemed to have gone rather better and everyone's spirits seemed to have perked up. Uh, what was your take on August? Um, it's a bit like that in, in some ways. I think the interesting part was for the for the first period of time really this year, equity started to falter. But it interestingly, bonds were selling off at the same time. So really the story in our narrative before about really it was recession talk turned into higher for longer. It really was that higher for longer meets maybe it will cause some pain in equities. That was the first part of the month. And really, uh, and it went on for actually most of the month really. And it's only a, f- a short period at the end, a bit of a bounce really, again, in quite a small number of names, which is quite an interesting part. And that's equity only. So there are some interesting other currents. So in equities, the large cap tech names suddenly rallied again. So it's a bit bit like back to the start of the year, which is bad news for those who think we were in for a better period of the economy, because actually a lot of the economic data was worse, if anything, or certainly mixed during the month. Because we wanted a more broader bull market to, to, to last longer, you need more stocks to be, be doing well. But it went back to really the handful of names driving the market on, the growth names, the value names selling off a bit. And I think the other interesting aspects to it, bonds were selling off pretty much the whole month. There's not really been um, any improvement. And that's really the, the sort of main, I suppose, in, in the Sherlock Holmes, I'm trying to think of the right analogy, but it's it's the main information that maybe people aren't paying attention to is the fact that those interest rates just keep going up and up. So we, we are, we're maintaining, despite some mixed news, interest rates stay above 4% on the 10-year in the US, which and really breaking out to to higher levels. So I think that's the, one of the pain points. And the other one was the dollar. So for most of the early part of the year, dollar was weakening, again, giving giving back some of the gains of last year. But we've seen some dollar strength. And that's really, again, where we next going to see pain point is how do people feel about interest rates going up? And also, how do we respond to dollar strength? In particular, Japan. Japan is where uh, we're back to the levels where the Bank of Japan intervened before. The, the yen is that weak again, and also in China. And China's another area we'll touch on later. But I think those are the interesting parts. So I think that for, for investors, really, it was a test case of what happens in the first part of the month when everything goes down at once, which is is kind of um, the good news. Maybe a bit of a false dawn uh, now, but we're still 
still within that realm of uh, the questions about whether recession's coming or not. So I wanted to ask about uh, consensus, obviously um, prefacing that by saying that we all know there isn't really consensus in markets and, and the price you end up with is the balance of lots and lots and lots of competing views in lots and lots of different directions. But, uh, but let's, for the moment, stick with the concept of consensus. Where is consensus now on the economy in the US? So we've heard a lot about the idea that there'll be an immaculate soft landing, that is to say the economy will slow, inflation will come down, and therefore interest rates will follow all the while growth remains untouched and therefore unemployment hovers around the current low levels. So what, 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 is, the, what is the market consensus? What, where, where is the sort of midpoint view, the balanced view uh, of where we are? Recession or, or soft landing? Yeah, I think it, it's still the open question. So where where does and and there's a di- there's still a difference between what people are saying and what they're doing. So where's the consensus in terms of where people put their money, and where's in, in terms of what people are saying? I think in general, though, if we were to to sort of generalise, that soft landing is still the dominant narrative. That's still the dominant consensus. Certainly, that's what's priced in in equity markets. So the good news of better growth, better revenues. We're not going to see um, see a sort of bear market coming. That's pretty much priced in, uh, certainly in equity markets. Credit also to a lesser degree, but equity markets as a whole. And I suppose in bond markets, uh, there's a bit of a tear between actually growth has surprised the upside in the US. And that's one of the reasons why um, interest rates keep um, moving a bit higher. But I think where, so so although consensus has still got this concept of soft landing, we're not going to see much uh, of a recession in the US. Where it's being tested a bit is, and where there is disagreement more, I think is what's happening to inflation. So a lot of people are expecting this disinflationary impulse, which is now happening and everyone can see it. But how sticky is it? So some of the indicators are more sticky than others. And if it's more sticky, does that mean we're going to have higher interest rates and that foretells the recession? So I think that's that's certainly more the bond markets taking a slightly different view to the equity market um, on on those those points. But yeah, most people recession probabilities are coming back, and they they're trying to work out how this this soft landing is going to happen. And, and where are we, Robert? So consensus, the, the, the balanced view of the market, or where the market ends up, is in a relatively, particularly in the US, sort of benign place, as you describe, and people's expectations of recession, if indeed it ever comes, have been pushed back. Where are we in this discussion? Where are we in this debate? So I think we try and think of in terms of ranges of outcomes and probabilities. And I think that's, and, and the answer really in terms of where, where do you have the biggest divergence to the market is really all the good news is priced into equities. There's a higher probability of bad news, bad recession happening, maybe being a bit worse than is in the market. And so there's your opportunity. The market is too too optimistic based on the relative probabilities. I think when we you think about probabilities of, of recession in the next 12 months, um, I think if you just look at the data, it's more like 60% if you give a number, a range. I think we try and balance it with thinking of a base rate concept. How often do recessions happen in the long term? How often do they happen in the regime of the last 30 years? And there you get a number more like 40%. But it's certainly a lot more elevated than usual. Usually it'd be 10 to 15% or, or less. Um, so it does the chance of bad news happening in the US is, is higher than certainly is priced in. And I would say um, 
although consensus is there, there are people on both sides of the trade and there are a lot of uh, professional investors more defensively positioned. Um, and I think even within the data, we've seen a lot of disagreement. This was the whole problem of COVID. It, it was such a big distortion to a lot of the data series that it just did mean things are going to happen and it's going to be harder to pass the data than, than at any time really in the last 40 years and harder to get the timing exactly right. But Look at the disagreement between GDP and GDI, which I've mentioned before on this podcast. GDI is in recessionary territory in the US. We may well already be in the recession uh, when we look back and when uh, recessions are, um, are sort of dated. So I think the, the jury is still a bit out. Certainly, a lot of the data is weakening and there is some softening. I think what's interesting is perhaps what delayed the consumption decline is really that big wedge of savings that was built up over COVID. And there's some evidence that's starting to be close to the point where it's being exhausted, um, certainly across a, a larger number of people. So again, maybe we're getting into the territory where consumption starts to turn down. Certainly, there's been some mixed evidence in retail sales. So I think um, certainly we're a bit more cautious. And I think the cautious, it's not all about the US. I think you look at China, China's certainly having a big slowdown. Europe, arguably, we're into recession already in a number of countries. So um, I think for us, that the chance of that recession or having a soft landing, I think is, is too too high. And the chance of more difficult period, even in the next 12 months, is a bit higher than certainly is priced in at the moment. So, so I was... I, I, I... I was going to say, are you certain there's going to be a recession? That, maybe that's an unfair question, I guess, because what you're saying in a way is <laughs> there's never there's never that certainty, which is why we have markets, but that the the, the probability is higher than normal, and and your sense of where the probability is is probably higher than the sort of the mean point in markets. Is is that fair? Yes, I mean that's where forecasts are. So forty percent chance of recession means exactly that. It may happen, it may not. There's more more chance of it not being a recession in the next 12 months, but it's more elevated, certainly in multiple of times more than a, a usual period of time. And there's no doubt the economy is, uh, with unemployment this low, pretty close to spare capacity. And there is this whole question, and this is where it interplays. The better the data is in the economy, the more difficult the problems occur because interest rates keep going up until there is problems. So in, in a way, it becomes a little bit reflexive. Um, and recession will come. I think the interesting point, though, is soft landings are very rare across all markets and periods of time. And it usually requires um, a unique set of circumstances, which include a supply shock on the positive side, which, again, we can go into that, but that's not really evident. You could look back to the mid-80s. There's a positive supply shock related to the oil market, which helped um, have a soft landing. We don't really have that now. A big productivity boom like the late 90s in the US, I think that's a bit early for AI to provide that. It will in time, but that that that's, that is one, one area which could happen. It needs a big change in monetary policy. So, in fact, you have to have monetary policy move quickly to cutting rates. And that's what market is expecting, and that's what's required for a soft landing. But the difficulty is, will they respond that quickly? Because if they don't, that will mean recession. But... Um, all the periods where there have been soft landings, you need suddenly to go not just keep rates higher for longer, but start cutting rates aggressively. Um, and also that inflationary impulse to decline. So I think that's that's why I'm phrasing it. It is a balance of probabilities, but it is, is it, it is elevated and it is very difficult. So if we're just looking at how many times it's happened, yes, it can happen. But it is—it's a low probability of having um, all the, all the good news happening, 
And the bad news is that is all priced into the markets. It would be better if we were in a lower pricing markets and then soft landing may happen, may not, but at least you can buy assets at a decent price. Um, but at an aggregate level, that's not really the case at the moment. Let's come on to bind this all together and talk about, well, okay, how then do you keep portfolios positioned for this place where you know there is as you said, markets are priced to perfection. Uh, equity markets, perhaps, are priced to perfection. Uh, you've got the elevated risk of recession. You've got uncertainty about interest rates, but which are just you know objectively much much higher than they were a couple of years ago. So how do you, and, and therefore you 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 know we, we need to protect capital. So how, how do we how do we construct portfolios that protect capital, but don't just sort of hide away and don't just sort of hunker down and sort of wait for the storm to pass, but are actively trying to find ways in these difficult circumstances of delivering returns. So I think absent a really catastrophic depression and really extreme events and war, there's always money to be made in some equities and some companies. So I think that's worth worth remembering. Um, that there are companies that produce revenues across many different economic environments. So um, you don't need to just hide away. The good news is at the moment, if you did want to hide away, um, at least you're paid for it. So I think the first point is there is a real alternative. There is um, cash. There are fixed income has become relatively more appealing. So there are things investors can do. So I think the first thing is you don't want to completely hide in the shell. Um, so there are these pockets of value, some regions that are more appealing than others, some companies more than others. Um, some will be more attuned to the new regime. Um, but you don't want to buy in aggregate. So I think the idea, passive 60-40 or something like that, actually, it's better now to do 60-40 than it was two years ago. But uh, even now, you pick your spots. So I think be more active than usual at this point in time is the fir first point. So even within... Um, your portfolio more active than passive. You're still taking risk in equities rather than bonds. I think that's the whole point about inflation regime, like we saw in in um, uh, just that little period in August, like we saw in March 2020, like we saw throughout 2022. Bonds and equities now in this environment of higher inflation can go down at the same time. So again, not you don't want you want to diversify more broadly. So having some alternatives that can do well in a month like. Or the, like the start of August. So that, that's one of the rationale for why you'd have more hedge funds or more alternative strategies than usual. Again, diversifiers think you want the value spread, but you don't want to be just long stocks because aggregate stocks are pretty expensive. Have a long, short value. That's the reason we've got that in the portfolio. So some of those hedge fund strategies can do well in that type of environment. So broader diversifiers is, is the, other, um, the other key part. Um, and also being... Um, being a bit more nimble uh, to be able to change between asset classes and position the portfolio accordingly is important. And again, with bonds, bonds can provide some protection, but it's maybe not yet. So which is why you may look at gold, um, having shorter duration bonds. So I think th those are the other ways within the diversifiers and protection to, to protect portfolios. And I think the last point I, I would say, because there's plenty, plenty of others, but I think thinking to the future Inflation is where we could really be wrong. Um, and that is priced to perfection again, another market of expecting inflation to come back down and we're in this great regime. Now, if you've got your 
uh, companies that you like that are going to do well in this environment, you, and you're, you're actually picking them, that's great. But you want to protect against that world of higher inflation because inflation going up would be an environment where bonds and equities re-rate at the same time. Um, and not all hedge funds can protect in that environment. So I think thinking smart ways, um, real assets, inflation swaps, um, uh, are some of the ways you can try and provide portfolio protection against higher inflation as well. You touched on it earlier, Rob, but let's turn to China. So if one were to go back to Q4 last year and look at expectations for the year ahead, we touched on how the U.S., has probably done better than most folk were expecting in terms of the resilience, particularly of growth in the face of rising interest rates. But the other surprise, but in a completely different direction, has been China. So Chinese authorities moved away from their COVID zero policy in Q4, and the expectation was that the Chinese economy would show similar patterns of behavior to what we had seen in the West when the COVID-induced restrictions were released and you saw a surge of, of consumption and consumption particularly of, of services, people going out again. And yet that just simply doesn't seem to have happened in China. So it's been a surprise in, in, the, in the other direction. So I, I wonder if you could talk about that. What happened? Why, why, did, why, did, why did folk get it wrong? What, what, what was it that's happened in China that has meant that that sort of surge of demand and consumption that we were expecting just simply doesn't seem to have materialized? Um, so the, the first thing to say is it did materialize a bit. So Q1, China did rebound. So there was positive growth. Uh, I think the expectation was there would be quite a wide variety of outcomes with China and it could be quite bumpy. And that's sort of what's happened. But I think the surprise to the downside is a, a, f- a few a few factors, really. is why, why in sort of Q2 we've seen China dive? Well, the heart of the problem is the property market. So that's really what's going on in China is um, property slowdown. That was a key driver of growth and also exports as well. But those those two combined have been the, the, the key drags. And we're still in that that period now, um, uh, sales of new homes are down down a lot, construction's down a lot, which drags on the rest of the economy. So that's really the epicenter of the problem. And partly that's a response to the to the sort of policy of the last 10 years, if you think about, um, and we, we gave that analogy before about why it was different. China, in a way, after 2008, was the country that pumped in all the, uh, the stimulus. The US was a bit, bit more rest and a bit behind the curve. So this time around, actually, China didn't unleash the spigots in the same way the US did. So the US really, and the rest of the developed world, really released a lot of stimulus. And what's the reason China's sort of held back is actually they they didn't want to make the same mistake in their eyes that they did before and have a big boom in debt and uh, pump up house prices. So they have been trying to clamp down on um, uh, property activity um, and not produce too much stimulus. And that's a bit where they're caught between those, those uh, two points at the moment. Some from sort of theoretical reasons, they don't want to go down that route. They don't want to go down the welfare state route of the West, actually. That's, again, a at the heart of what they're um, considering, um, and they don't want to have that debt fuel debt fuel boom, but they also don't want uh, growth to slow down too fast. And that's been the problem: is policy is not um, 
provided the, the the stimulus that's needed in China to support growth. And we're waiting for that to happen. And growth has to slow enough to make that happen. Now, there are some thoughts that maybe it will occur late in the year after some of the uh, party member meetings in October, um, which may happen. It may be forced to happen a bit sooner. I think that's, that is looking more likely than, than not. It will just take a bit of time um, to happen. So I think that's that's the key dynamic. And also the dynamic is the populace in China, again, didn't have that animal spirits because there wasn't the stimulus. Um, they haven't gone out spending. So they're not buying risky assets. They're not buying property like they used to. They've listened to the the, the measures from the government uh, in terms of we're going to slow down the property, um, gr- the growth in property prices, and they're not surging back into that area. And also because of the lack of a, a safety net um, and the, the impacts of all those harsh lockdowns, actually, that's had some negative impact, I think, on animal spirits. So China is caught in a bit of a slow growth trap short term, as well as it's after a decade-long period where there's been this surge of property prices and, and debt, which itself was always a bit of a, um, a hurdle and potential deflationary problem. So is, is China a buy, Robert? Is China now cheap because of all the things that you have described, which have had a pretty, pretty <laughs> negative effect on asset prices in China? They've seen some, some, quite, um, some quite big markdowns, haven't they? Yeah, so this is the difficult question for me because my my value investing side really wants to say China looks a screaming buy, which it does if you just consider what's priced in being this short-term economic environment. Arguably, now a lot of companies, if you if you pick your areas, not the state-owned areas, but pick your areas, there's a lot of cheap companies. If if that was the only concern, so I think the bad news from the economy. A lot of that is priced in because a lot there's been a lot of talk about are we going to this Lehman Minsky moment in China, and that's much less likely than the U.S. because it is uh, a state capitalist system. There are state resources, so you're not going to have that sudden. And there are a lot of um, sort of safety nets in between a sudden a collapse of the market. They will they will step in. The problem is it could actually be more protracted like a Japan. Have we reached that moment where we're going to just see lower growth for longer and um, sort of lack of productivity growth, more inefficient companies and just that sort of stagnation? That's a problem. And I think that's that that potentially is not priced in. But if it if it was just that, then then there are, are opportunities in China. The problem is the geopolitical risk side, I don't think is priced in. And I don't think a lot of people know that direction. And unfortunately, a lot of the direction of travel has been in a negative move. So it's making it very difficult for investors outside China um, to, to, to invest in China. And simply put, I suppose, do you have to, to you don't have to invest in everything to make money. I think that's the important point Warren Buffett makes about, uh, he likens it to Ted Williams, the famous baseball player. You don't have to swing your bat at every pitch. You can wait for a fat pitch. So maybe there is a fat pitch in China and a good opportunity, but there are cheap companies in Taiwan, in Korea, within Asia even. Um, there's growth in India. Indonesia is another potential growth um, area. So, And there's plenty of opportunities with AI and secular growth trends in, in the US. So I think that's that's somewhat of the difficulty and why I'm a little bit more hesitant on China, because that that this this cracking of the market and and the world bifurcating is happening. This this bipolar world that we call multipolar world we talked about before is and I think one of the big 
changes in August that maybe is a bit under the radar is this whole expansion of the BRICS that's being uh, that, that's happening. Now it's far too early. The BRICS haven't really done anything together, but the very fact this is this expansion is happening and the BRICS plus um, with the addition of the com- cu- countries like uh, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, etc. Um, now is a much bigger, or it is a bigger portion of global GDP than the G7. Uh, it controls a large majority of the oil assets. There's a lot of uh, shifting in the economic sand. So I think that side is more difficult to price into China at the moment than, than it has been in the past and potentially isn't priced in. Um, so that's why it's a much more thorny question than it has been in recent years, I think. And so in practice, Robert, what are we doing in portfolios? What have we been doing? Um, well, I think we've been carefully monitoring our China risk. Uh, we're, we're moving to more liquid exposure in China. So we're reducing our illiquid exposure. So we've, we've, we're nimble and able to move quickly. Um, I think on that market pricing, you know, we are at a bit of a low at the moment. So the, the and, and the bad news, there probably is some bad news to come. But if the policy does come, which is likely between now and the end of the year, there will be a bounce in prices. So I think now is not necessarily the moment to suddenly go in and sell all your your china assets but really potentially it's looking for for selling when when there's a bit of a bounce and looking at other areas to to um, protect your portfolio and try and manage that um, geopolitical risk which is hard to manage by staying liquid and being nimble so finally robert let's turn to the very very practical which is what we're doing in our research activity at the moment so You've described the overall macro environment uh, where you've got some uncertainty around economic outcomes, uh, but you've got risk asset markets that generally are assuming that they're all going to end in benign fashion, slightly more nuanced view of you've described in uh, in bonds. But as we've discussed, that's not, therefore, you, don't, you shouldn't draw the conclusion from that that you should just hunker down and hide away and wait for it to pass. No, no, we, we are always actively looking for opportunities to uh, to make money for our clients, to find pockets of value, to find mispricings that will work in our favour. And that's very much what our research team is about, going and trying to find people that are uh, identifying and, and exploiting these, these opportunities. So can you um, uh, talk a little bit, Robert, about, about your research priorities at the moment? What are the what are the opportunities that you're looking at and actively considering, bearing in mind that, that not everything that we actively consider turns into uh, an investment decision? There are uh, situations where we actively monitor something, look at it, and then decide not to do it. Yeah, so I think when, when we were talking at the start of the year, again, to this point of being active and not trying to use market beta to get you return, um, and also the fact we are in this change of regime and, and cycle um, uh, change or an inflection point in the cycle, Although the whole economy is not tipped over across many different countries, and we're seeing this regional disparity we've talked about already, there are some cracking at the surface and some some issues and dislocations that have emerged. So I think that's where we were focusing at the start of the year, is trying to pick out pockets of where either there were distressed sellers and people were forced to sell, or market dislocations where there are opportunities. So some of those that we did earlier in the year, for example, was the reinsurance market, the ILS market. There, there was a market dislocation. Rates were very high. There's the opportunity to get higher return for the risk that you're taking um, in a way that's uncorrelated to other markets. Um, the other market we looked at was distressed, um, and we found a distressed manager we liked who can play across both corporate 
also real assets and real estate, real estate in particular, where there's opportunities already emerging and that cracking um, is happening. But the, if the next few years have problems, you can make money. If not, they're still active and they're able to um, produce a good return. So I think that that's another source. And the next market, which we're looking at and really at the moment, is sort of venture capital. Now, clearly, there was a big cracking last year, and that's one area which has had a proper recession and bear market. Prices are down a long way in the public markets. Yes, some have bounced this year, but private markets, it just happens with a lag and there's a lot of a lot of down rounds still to come a lot of unicorns that are at those uh, fake, fake or really too high valuations are going to have to come to reality as as their cash burns uh, and the burn rate increases so um venture capital market is an opportunity that is dislocated so we're looking at venture capital secondaries that's a, a space which potentially you can tap into some growth at some really interesting discount prices so i think those are some of the um, source of dislocation. We're also looking at more stress, distress credit as another way where, again, credit spreads too low at the moment, but potentially we're seeing default rates already going up, which we are actually, um, and we're seeing tightening credit conditions. So as that happens, as people reach that reach their moment of refinancing, um, it just takes a while till they have to refinance. But that's the moment you have to become um, the business models that were too finely tuned to low interest rates. Sort of again meet meet, meet reality. So we're looking at that credit stress credit place. Um, and then in terms of equities, I think the um, the, the a couple of the areas that um, are of interest. We talked about emerging markets a bit today and in the past, but particularly emerging markets outside China, but also including China. It, when we go through the the dip and into the new cycle, they look very cheap against the rest of the world. So we're looking for an active manager in that space and the other space more for secular growth, but again is a bit more dislocated and hasn't had the full bounce back this year is thinking about healthcare and biotech. Um, so again, sources of secular growth, an area where an active manager can make a real difference, a lot of binary event risk, a lot of specialist knowledge that's required. On its own, it can be a bumpy ride, but if you can get in at a, uh, with a high quality manager at a cheap price at a cheap time, that's a really good uh, area. So that's something we're looking slightly further along the horizon, but um, I think those are some of the areas where um, we, we think we can um, add value on top of the way the portfolio is already positioned in terms of long value stocks, long Japan uh, with, with an activist manager, say, et cetera. The things we've talked about in prior podcasts are still in the portfolio, ready to ready to source um, future gains. If we could perhaps come at this from another direction, uh, Robert, I'd be interested in your thoughts on uh, things that we wouldn't do. Uh, what, what are the things out there that... It might well be attracting investor interest at the moment that you look at and think, hmm, you know, really not sure about that. I mean, I do recall going back some while when interest rates were considerably lower than they are now. One of your one of your pieces of advice to 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 everyone was, please don't reach for yield. Um, maybe that's that's evolved. So, what what are the things that you're wary of at the moment that you see out there and think, hmm, yes, no, really shouldn't be doing that. Yeah, I think that that was amongst the best advice I'd probably given. That, that don't reach for yields. So when you look at some of the the biggest uh, example I I would give of that is the Austrian hundred year bond that was out there. I mean, that if you want to see what a big bear market's like, have a look at the price and and see how far that's down. Um, so I think that was the advice then. 
I think it is more nuanced now. Uh, yields are more attractive. So there are pockets of fixed income which look appealing. Unfortunately, the risk is a bit asymmetric in the sense of higher rates are still um, and higher inflation is still a bit of an enemy. So maybe short term, there's uh, some appeal within fixed income, but that is a bit of a problem out there. And the problem on credit side is the spreads are really not widened enough. So um, I think maybe there's a bit too much optimism in private debt and private uh, real estate credit, private credit. Um, but there are some opportunities there. So I'm not saying it's a completely no, but it's it's given the illiquidity risk, it's a bit more, it's a harder um, trade-off than perhaps investors um, are looking at at the moment. So I think that's a bit a bit harder um, uh, sort of conversation to have. Um, I think the, the things, are, I don't know, I mean, NVIDIA is the hardest one we talked about before. I think that's that's really where you've you've got the, the risk of getting suckered into something which could be a great company, but not necessarily a great investment. And I think Rob Arna, Rob Research Affiliates, did a great research piece in the last week or so, just putting out the numbers of the top 10 uh, tech stocks uh, in 2000. Um, only one of those stocks outperformed the S&P in the following, I think it was 10, either 10 or 20 years, and that was Microsoft. Uh, all the others underperformed the S&P, even though there are a lot of great companies within that and a lot of great improvement. Um, and even Microsoft, you didn't want to own it the first 12 years. You wanted to be out of Microsoft until 2012 and go in then when it was cheap. So I think that's that's one area of the market where perhaps you need to be a little bit more cautious is, is where investors are really piling in and uh, the optimism is a bit too high. So yes, there's a lot of good good um, companies there. They're amongst the best companies of all time. But actually, even those those FANG companies, when you look at their revenues, they're, they're down, I think, over the last year, about 7% or so. So, they, you know, Apple's still churning out cash flow, but the, in aggregate, they've not grown over that period of time and, and they are priced quite expensively. So, I think that sort of nifty 50 type buying quality at any price, um, you've just got to be a bit more cautious, perhaps, than... than um, investors are being at the moment so i think those are the two maybe two of the areas that investors are jumping in and even on venture capital i would say we think that's a great time to be looking at it um but again it's all about you, you when when a knife is falling you don't necessarily need to be the first in um you need to stagger your entry point and the same for emerging markets so i think don't jump in gung-ho at this point uh, even some of the areas which are going to be appealing in the next 10 years it's about phasing your way in so i think that's the other uh, thing sort of not to do. Robert, wonderful. Thank you. That's it for uh, for today. Thank you very much for joining. You can subscribe to Talking Capital on all major platforms. Capital Generation Partners, LLP, is authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and is registered as an investment advisor by the US Securities and Exchange Commission. This podcast and opinions expressed do not constitute investment advice and do not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to purchase any security or any other investment or product. Nothing said during this podcast should be construed as an invitation or inducement to engage in investment activity. All information and opinions expressed herein are current as of publication and are subject to change without notice. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from Capital Generation Partners to the listener. Capital Generation Partners makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or of any of the information contained in this podcast. And any liability, therefore, including in respect to direct or indirect loss, is expressly disclaimed. 
Please note that the value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. This podcast may not be copied, reproduced, further distributed to any other person or published in whole or in part for any purpose. Further information, including our privacy statement, can be found on our website at www.capitalgenerationpartners.com. Thank you.